It's always interesting to watch the kids go out. You ought to sit where I sit up here. You almost get ran over every Sunday, but that is a good problem to have. Man, it's good to see you this morning again. Welcome to Red Lane Baptist, and Trevor, thank you, and the worship team for leading us this morning. Uh, if you do not know, uh, our church voted overwhelmingly to call uh, Trevor last Sunday as our new associate pastor of worship administration, so he's been full-time <clears throat> for a week. And uh, such a blessing, him and Janelle and the boys have been to our church, and we're excited about the days ahead. So grab your Bible, if you will, and uh, take your finger and stick it in Exodus 13, put another finger in Exodus 40, and maybe a third finger in 1 Kings chapter 8. While you're doing all of that, in just a moment, I'll read out of John 1. So uh, if you got, we're going to use all your fingers this morning. It is Christmas season, and it's a beautiful time of the year. You see this morning that our stage is decorated, and we're ready and set for Christmas uh, these days. We've sang about the Lord this morning, and that's what we do during Christmas, is we sing about the Lord and His salvation and, and how that has been brought about, and ultimately has been brought about because He came. Uh, and Emmanuel is what the Bible says of Jesus, what the Bible names Jesus, and He is God with us. So we sing about the Lord during Christmas season, and one of the songs that we sing is, I'll Be Home for Christmas. I don't know if that is overly Christian song, but we sing that in America. In fact, it's probably one of the standard songs. I remember as a kid, we had in our house a cassette. Some of you don't remember what cassette players are, but it is the way what we used to listen to music. And I remember as a young child having a cassette of Bing Crosby and uh, just several of his songs. And one of those songs on that tape was I'll Be Home for Christmas. I've always loved that song. And so I did some research on that song this week. I found out that it was written by Kim Gannon. It was composed by Walter Kent and then recorded by Bing Crosby in 1943. The song soared to the top of the charts that year. It just kind of launched off and became one of the beloved songs of that year, really of the era of the World War II. Uh, largely because it conveyed the deep desire of our American military personnel that were deployed on two theaters of war and then their families back home and their desire to be together for Christmas during those long years of World War II. You know, since then, since Crosby released that song in 1943, it's been re-recorded by many artists. I saw the other day that Michael Bublé has that song. It's a beautiful song. And, and then from that kind of genre, that idea of I'll be home for Christmas, we have seen many other songs, television shows, movies. I mean, we got a whole network that has this idea of people coming home for Christmas and B-rated movies that come out. And many of you ladies love those type of movies. What is it with this idea, this desire, this longing for families and friends to be together over Christmas? As I mentioned, there's been all kinds of movies. Perhaps one of the most famous movies to kind of delve into this idea of being together with family over Christmas is Home Alone. Anybody love Home Alone? I remember watching that movie as a young teenager, and it just came out, I think, 1990, somewhere in that neighborhood. And and just a hilarious, still to this day, one of the funniest movies you can watch. 
But if you know the story, you, you know kind of what's going on there. If you don't, I'm going to tell you. But in the, in the movie, there is this character, a young boy named Kevin. And Kevin is kind of a bratty boy. And, and he gets left at home. His family, which is an extended family, have been at the house the night before. They've been enjoying dinner together. They've been trying to pack and get ready. They're going to Paris as a family to be with other family members. And so they oversleep. And, and so they wake up late. They hustle to the airport, get on the plane, fly all the way to Paris, and then finally realize Kevin's not with them. And so they're distraught, or at least mom and dad are distraught, siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles really could care less because Kevin's a little bit of a brat and, and they're done with him. But mom is distraught. And so mom's trying to get home. It's holiday. There are no empty seats for a quick return to Chicago. And so she embarks on her own journey to get back to Chicago. And while all that is going on, bratty eight-year-old Kevin wakes up and no one's in the house. And he's thinking, where is everybody? And then he begins to realize this ain't too bad. I kind of like the house to myself. I kind of like doing things on my own. And so throughout the movie, you watch him go through this journey of enjoying the fact that he's alone to coming around full circle to realizing I really miss mom and dad. I even miss my annoying siblings and cousins. And so it ends with them returning home and all is well and everything is good and they have a good Christmas together. Where in the world do we get this overarching desire to be together over Christmas? I think the obvious answer is the Sunday school answer. It's found in God. We find this overarching desire to be with one another because God has a desire to be with us. We saw last week in the creation in the Garden of Eden that God has always had this plan to create and to be with his creation. James tells us in James 1.17 that every good gift comes down from the Father above. More specifically speaking, we see in the Christmas story that God the Son came to dwell with humanity. You see, Jesus came to take up residence with us. And so listen as I read just two verses from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. During the Christmas season, we as Christians, we celebrate the fact that God has come to dwell with us. We celebrate the fact that Jesus is human, or God in human flesh, that he is the incarnate Son of God. And so what we're doing over these few Sundays during December, during this Christmas season, is we are tracking this theological theme, this concept of God dwelling with humanity from the Garden of Eden. And we're going to finalize this in January 1 as we see it in the new heaven and the new earth. And so this morning, we are going to look at Emmanuel in the tabernacle. We began with Emmanuel in the garden. Now we're looking at Emmanuel in the tabernacle. You know, as we talk about the tabernacles, we generally discuss what the tabernacle is. Usually, we're referring to that tent of meeting, that place that Moses constructed under uh, the inspiration and the leadership of God that he put together there in the wilderness for worship and for the sacrificial system to take place. It was that tent that had all kinds of rich decorations and curtains. And within that tabernacle, there was the, the bread of the presence. There was the Ark of the Covenant. There was the lampstand. And then there was the altar for the burnt offerings. But as you search through the Old Testament, we see more than just that tent of meeting. In fact, there are three tents mentioned in the Old Testament. 
The first tent is one that Moses pitched outside of the camp. If we were to go to Exodus 33 this morning, we would see that Moses pitched this tent outside of the camp largely in response to the rebellion of Israel and the idolatry of the golden calf. God, in that moment, because of their idolatry, because of their rejection of his leadership, pulled back from them and would not be in their midst, would not be present among them. And then later, thankfully, we see that God graciously in Exodus 34, again, covenanted to go with them and to be in their midst. But for a short time, Moses set up this tent of meeting outside of the camp, and it seems to have served as more, almost like a headquarters for the camp. The people, all of them were welcome. They, they could come outside of the camp and come to the Lord and to seek the Lord. And so many of them did. They would come before the Lord there in that tent of meeting for judicial answers. They would come there to that tent of meeting outside of the camp for worship of the Lord. They would also come to that, that tent outside of the camp to seek the Lord for a prophetic word. And Moses was the spokesman. Moses was the one who would take the request, take the worship, and take it to the Lord before that tent and then bring the answer back to them. When Moses would go to that tent of meaning, the Bible tells us in Exodus 33 that a pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and speak with Moses like a friend. God would speak to Moses. We also see that when Moses would walk away, Joshua, his assistant, would stand guard over that tent there at the front entrance. That's the first tent. The second tent in the Old Testament that we see is referred to as the Sinaitic Tabernacle. That's the tabernacle I mentioned just a moment ago. Moses constructed it in accordance with all of the instructions stipulated by God. We read of all of the details in Exodus 25 through Exodus 40. Unlike that first tent, this tabernacle stood at the center of the camp. The people of God camped around the tabernacle that we see in Numbers 2. The duties also in the care of the tabernacle were not assigned to Moses. Now they're assigned to Aaron, his brother, and to his tribe, his sons. They were the priests. The Levites came alongside the priests and helped tend to the ministry of the tabernacle, carrying it and erecting it and, and helping with the duties there. We also see that when it was erected, the pillar of cloud would descend upon the tabernacle. And when that cloud would go up and when it would move, the people of God would follow it. And so they followed the leadership of the Lord through the pillar of cloud. That's the second tent. The third tent we see in Solomon's temple and its later reconstructions, the Rubbables temple and then Herod's uh, expansion and remodeling of that temple. This temple was permanent. Where the tabernacle was, was transient, you could pick it up and move. That's how they moved through the wilderness for, 30, or for 40 years. David had this desire to build God an abode, a house for which he would dwell in the midst of his people. So Solomon, his son, constructed this temple in Jerusalem, the city of David. Today, if we were to go to Jerusalem, we would see that neither the tabernacle nor the temple are in existence. The temple replaced the tabernacle. But in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. And so today, if we go to Israel, we go to Jerusalem specifically, we stand there on the Mount of Olives just to the east of the city. We look across the valley and we would see not the temple that Solomon built, not the temple that Zerubbabel built, not the temple that Herod expanded in all of its grandeur. What you would see is the Dome of the Rock. That 
Islamic shrine that was constructed first in 692 AD, it today sets atop the ruins of Herod's temple. But here's where it gets gooder. There's coming a day. I don't know when that day will be, but we're nearer to it now than we were yesterday. There's coming a day when a new temple will reside in the new Jerusalem. And on that day, the Lord Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords will set enthroned for all of eternity in his kingdom, on his throne, and with his people. And we'll get to that on January 1. I'm telling you, as you walk through this theme of God dwelling with humanity, it is something that has encouraged my heart. And I pray that this Christmas season, it does the same for you. And so as we think about, as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ this season, I want us to remember that the dwelling with mankind that we see in the scripture, that we see in the incarnation of the Lord, has not just been an isolated, one-time event. It has always been God's plan. It has always been God's desire. We saw it in Emmanuel in the garden this morning. We will see it in the tabernacle. Next week, we will see Emmanuel in the flesh, and then we will see Emmanuel in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem that God will bring. Three things I want you to see in the, th the tabernacle this morning, though. Here it is. Number one, the tabernacle personified the presence of God. The tabernacle per personified the presence of God. We learn in the scriptures that when Moses erected this tent of meeting outside the camp, that first tent of meeting, and also when he erected that second tabernacle, the true tabernacle, when it was constructed there in the middle of the camp, in both situations, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, descended and filled those spaces. God's presence became apparent in those dwelling places. And so what was this pillar of cloud? I told you to put your finger there in Exodus 13. And so you've got your finger there. I just want you to scan through as I kind of talk about what's happening in Exodus chapter 12. What we find in Exodus 12 is that Pharaoh has finally let the people of Israel go from Egypt. If you remember the story, God's people, the descendants of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, have been in bondage for 400 plus years. Now they're crying out to the Lord. They started about 70 people. Now they're 2 million plus people. They're in bondage under horrendous conditions under Pharaoh's hand. They're crying out for deliverance, knowing that the Lord has said that they would come out of this, and God has heard them. You might ask, why did he wait so long? I don't know the answer to that. But God always hears, God always knows, and God always responds. And so he responds to the cry of his people. He calls Moses to himself and sends him to the people of God down in Egypt to bring them out. And we know how he brought them out. He brought them out with a mighty hand. God's word tells us that 10 plagues were unleashed upon Pharaoh and his people. And through that, Pharaoh was humbled and Egypt was devastated. So much so that in Exodus chapter 12, Pharaoh and his people drive the people of God out of Egypt, but they don't go empty-handed. God gives them, graciously gives them everything they need for the journey. They plunder Egypt as they leave. And in all of that, God was with his people. You see, in Exodus 13, as they're leaving Egypt now, the Lord goes before them in a pillar of cloud by night and a pillar of fire, or pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He is with his 
people. This pillar led Israel through the wilderness, led them into the promised land. When the tabernacle is constructed, as I mentioned earlier, the, t- the pillar of cloud descends there and covers it and fills that space. Look with me in Exodus chapter 40. I told you to put a finger there. If you don't have a, a finger this morning to put in those places, just look on the screen. Read along with me as I read verse 34 through the end of the chapter. God says, then God's word says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is now the tabernacle has been constructed. The, the spirit of God, the power of God is about to come. So when the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What does that tell us? God's presence was in the tabernacle. God was dwelling amongst his people. It was a very similar situation after Solomon's temple was constructed and the Ark of the Covenant was placed there in the Holy of Holies that we see God's presence descending just like in the tabernacle and it fills that space. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. Listen to this. The Bible tells us, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand a minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord Filled the house of the Lord. Again, the presence of God. This glory cloud was the visible manifestation of the presence of God. The rabbinic designation for this is the Shekinah glory. That's a word, a Hebrew term that comes from another Hebrew term, a root term that means to dwell. God's glory dwelt with humanity. God's presence was there amongst his people. You see, God's glorious presence resided with his people as he tabernacled with them. What does all this mean? As we're walking through this salvation history, I want you to make sure that you catch this. I don't want you to miss it. But as Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, remember, they were created to be in relationship with God. They were created that God would dwell in their midst, that there would be this close-knitness in relationship so that God is walking with them in the garden. That was a daily thing, if not perpetual thing in their lives. Yet when sin came in, it disrupted all of that. It changed everything. Now they're broken. Now they're running. Now they're seeking autonomy. Now they want nothing to do with the Lord. And yet God has not forsaken his image bearers. We saw how he clothed them and prophesied a Messiah. As we move through the story, and we come to the, to the man Abram, this idolater, this godless man who's on the backside of the wilderness doing his own thing. God calls Abram to himself, promises to make from him a mighty nation, yet he's a man who has no sons, no descendants, and yet God makes this claim. Later in the story, we see that he gave him instructions for his people, the people who would come after him through Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. God gives them instructions through Moses and the law of how to live and how to worship the Lord in holiness. We see that the tabernacle and the temple are are instituted into that worship. 
God continues to manifest his presence among his people. That's the beauty of what we see in salvation history. God dwelling with man. And today, God still desires to walk and to talk with you and I. You know, as you read your Bible, you should never think, well, that was back then. No, it's today. You see, God's presence that was there in Eden and God's presence that was there in Tabernacle is the same presence that God wants to have in your own life. Right where you are. He wants to take the brokenness of your life through sin and he wants to redeem it and restore it and for you to have relationship, fellowship with him like it was meant from the very beginning. And so the tabernacle personifies for us God's presence and it reminds us that this can and it should be a reality in your life and in my life which brings us to a second thing that I want to make sure that we see. The tabernacle pictured the pardon of God. Just like in Eden, in the presence of God, there is the pardon of God. There is the propensity for pardon for sin. And the tabernacle pictures this pardon through the altar of burnt offerings and the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant. Look back at Exodus chapter 40. I need some fingers to stick in my Bible. Exodus chapter 40, verse 29. Look what it has to say. Again, Moses and Moses and his brothers are putting the tabernacle together, and he says, And he set the altar burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, Pastor, why would you read that verse? It just seems so obscure. We, we understand what's going on. I think it's important that you understand this morning. I understand that in the tabernacle, it wasn't just a place that was beautiful. It wasn't just a place that was ornate. It wasn't just a place where they could kind of come and meet. No, when they came to the tabernacle, something died. The sacrifices died symbolizing the pardon and the forgiveness of sin that was necessary and available. So the law gives instructions for the many different offerings that were to be made in the worship of God and the, for the pardon of sin and all the effects of sin. The day of atonement of all of the rituals, of all of the ceremonies, the day of atonement was the very most important one. The greatest of all the ritual days. Listen to what happens on the day of atonement. The seventh month, the tenth day. On this day, the high priest would offer as a sin offering a bull for himself and for his family. He would then take two goats. One goat would be used as a sin offering for the people. He would kill this goat. He would take the blood of that goat, and he would collect it, and he would walk into the Holy of Holies behind the veil in the tabernacle that was a tent, and it had a, it had a holy section at the back. In the temple, it was a, a big building, but in the back of the sanctuary, there was a holy of holies, and in that place was the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what is called the mercy seat. Two cherubim, two angels would be at the very end of either side of the Ark of the Covenant, and in the middle of that was where the mercy seat was. And the high priest would come in with the blood of that goat, and he would sprinkle that blood before the mercy seat, symbolizing atonement. Then he would go out to the second goat. And he would take that goat and he would grab it and hold onto its head with his hands. And he would confess the sins of the people over that goat. 
look at it in its face and he would confess all of the atrocities that the people of God had made during that year. And I can't even imagine how long that would have taken. I, I, do, I don't think that it was, Lord, forgive us for sinning. I think the high priest dealing with the, the enormity of our sin would have been very specific in, in what those sins are. In today's world, if we were Israel, and, and, but we were living like Americans today, the high priest would say, Lord God, forgive America for the, the sin of abortion. Forgive us for the greed that we have. Forgive us for not believing in life. Forgive us for not believing in marriage. Those would be the type of sins he would confess. And then he would take that goat and release it, and someone would lead that goat outside of the camp, outside of the city of Jerusalem in the days of the temple. And that goat would symbolize the sins being transferred from the people onto the goat and led away never to return. That was the scapegoat. And then the high priest would take a lamb and offer that lamb as a burnt offering, a sacrifice for the atonement of sins. So as we celebrate and as we rejoice in the presence of God among his people, we dare not forget that in his presence, it is terrifying for sinners. We dare not go. And that's why the high priest would sacrifice that bull for his own atonement, for his family's atonement, before ever walking into the holy of holies. Being in the presence of God is a dangerous and terrifying place to be unless we have someone who is sinless going before us. His presence signals judgment, and yet we're not without hope. You see, in Eden, we see the pardon for sinners in God's presence. He redeemed them through the promise of the Messiah, as we saw last Sunday. And in that promise, he gives a picture of it. You see, before he kicked them out of the Garden Eden, there in Genesis 3.21, God kills an animal and takes the skins from those animals and creates coverings, clothing for their shame. That's the beauty of God's presence and the redemption of God's presence in Eden. And as we come to the tabernacle, we see this pardon for sin pictured in the sacrifice of animals there on the burnt offering, there in the mercy seat. It's pictured because this system foreshadowed everything that Jesus would ultimately accomplish on the cross. We don't have time to go there this morning, but if you were to go to Hebrews chapter 9 and specifically look at verses 11 through 14, it clearly lays out how Jesus personifies and fulfills everything that we see in the tabernacle and in the pardon of sin in Eden. It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. See, in the tabernacle, there is a pardon for sin. And so today, anyone who calls on the Lord Jesus forgiveness of sin receives a full pardon for sin. And that is secured not because of your good works or good intentions. It is secured because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross of Calvary. This morning, as forgiven sinners, you and I have been adopted into the family of God. Think about that. If you know Jesus Christ, you are part of the family of of God. And as part of the family of God, we see in the Bible all throughout it that our Heavenly Father watches over and He continues to keep covenant with His children. That is on full display in the pardon. That is on full display in the presence. But thirdly, we see that the tabernacle promised the protection of God. God continues to keep His covenant. What kind of covenant had God cut with His people? Genesis chapter 12, we see that God cut this covenant with Abraham promised to make him a mighty nation, that through him nations would be blessed. So from Isaac, the promise moved on to Jacob, and from Jacob to his 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Those sons, as I said earlier, were kept in bondage in Egypt for those 400 plus years. But listen, God never forgot them. God never forsook them, never abandoned them. He continued to hear their cry for deliverance, and Moses was sent to be the deliverer. Then when Israel finally left Israel, what happens? The pillar of cloud travels with them, leads them to the edge of the Red Sea. I think I mentioned this maybe last Sunday, but listen to what happens here in Exodus chapter 14. God leads Israel to the banks of the Red Sea. They think everything is wonderful, and yet God, one last time, hardens the heart of Pharaoh. He begins to think, I've made a big mistake. He grabs what left, left uh, uh, troops he has. They march out against Israel, and there they are, pinned in, outgunned, got the Red Sea to their backs and Egypt in front of them, and they have nowhere to go to escape. And they begin to cry out to God. They begin to be fearful. Fear seizes them. They even began to lament the fact that they had left Egypt in the first place. The ones who were crying for deliverance are now saying, we made a mistake. But listen to how Moses responded. Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. If I remember correctly, Moses is staying, saying this not because he knows that God's going to lead them through the Red Sea. He's saying this because he believes God's faithful. And then God has a conversation with Moses saying, why are you crying to me? Go over there and lift your hands up, right? Go over there and stand and lift your hands up and tell the people to go forward and to move. And that's exactly what happened. Moses instructed the people to begin to move toward the Red Sea, and he lifts his staff, and the water parts in, in this miraculous event that no one has ever seen before, and it's never happened since. And the wall, water became a wall of water, and the people crossed on dry land. And when that happened, God did something else, just as miraculous. You've got the pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud and fire is there in front of them by the Red Sea. And as they begin to move forward, it goes up into the sky and moves behind them and blocks the way for the Egyptians so that they cannot follow. Look at it in verse 19. The angel, then the angel of God was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. All night long, as Israel crossed the Red Sea, Egypt never got close to Israel. As the Israelis looked back and they saw that pillar, what did they see? They saw a pillar of fire. They saw light. They saw truth. As the Egyptians looked on it, they saw darkness. They were darkened in their hearts, darkened in their understandings, condemned in their sin. And yet God gave light and salvation and deliverance for his people. God protected his people. The same was true of the temple. First Kings chapter 8, we're not going to go there this morning. But as Solomon is dedicating the temple after it's been constructed, he's praying to the Lord and he says, when we sin and when we walk away from you and when we do what we're not supposed to do, what's forbidden in the law, and when we turn and we look back to this temple, which is saying, when we, God, look to you and we confess our sin and we turn from that sin, hear it and respond. God, don't give us over judgment to, to the people around us. 
but protect your people. And God, over and over and over again in, his, in the history of his people, did just that. You see, God's promised his presence. God has promised his protection. And in that, it implies our worship and our obedience to his word. Back in 1943, as Bing Crosby released that beautiful song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, you know what was going on in that day? America had millions of people, soldiers, men and women, sailors even, marines, deployed over those two theaters of war. They were there in service of our great nation. They were there to combat the evils of the Axis powers. While they understood their assignment and their duty, they also had a deep longing to come home. And probably within the heart of every singer soldier, every sailor, every Marine was a desire to get home. Even as they carried out their duty, they couldn't wait to get back to the hills of Tennessee. They couldn't wait to get back to the blue wonder of the Shenandoah Valley. They couldn't wait to get back to the wonders of the beauty of California. They wanted to come home even as they carried out their duty. They wanted to be with friends and family. The desire and the plan of our great God has always been to be at home with his image bearers. His plan was not and it is not isolated to the incarnation. The beauty of Jesus is beautiful beyond all comparison, but it is not the only moment that God shows his desire to be with humanity. He wants to be in relationship with his image bearers. He wants to enjoy the intimacy that we were created to enjoy with him. He wants us to experience everything that Eden was for Adam and Eve. And so today as we look at the tabernacle, we discover God's presence. We discover his pardon for sin. And we discover his beautiful, wonderful faithfulness to his people. And so for us, the question is out there, do you know God's presence in your life? Do you know that? Is that a reality for you? I didn't ask this morning if you're religious. I didn't ask this morning if you serve in some capacity in the church. I didn't ask any of those type of religious questions. The answer is simple. Do you know the, the presence of God? Yes or no? Have you ever come to a place in your life when you know that you've turned from your sin and trusted and experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for yourself? Have you experienced that pardon? Can you see his faithful, protective hand on your life? Can you look back over the, the history of your life and you just see how God has faithfully walked with you step by step by step? If you can answer those questions with an affirmative saying, yes, I know the presence of God. Yes, I've experienced the pardon of God. Yes, I've seen the faithfulness of God. Then you know everything that Moses experience. You know everything that Adam and Eve experienced. You know everything that David and Solomon experienced and all the people of God. But today, if you've never come to know the presence of God or the pardon of God, then you know nothing of the faithfulness of God. And today, I would point you to that. In this Christmas season, I would point you to just that. Why did Jesus come into this world? Not just to show himself great and wonderful, but so that you could be in relationship with him. It's always been about fellowship with the ones he created in his own image. So this morning, may we know his presence, may we know his pardon, and may we know his faithfulness. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for being that for us.
in this Christmas season as we are busy. I pray that we do not lose sight of what it's really all about, the presence of God. God, we experience a lot of presence in this season. Many of us in this room have been to too many Christmas parties and we can even care to, to, to describe. And it's only a couple weeks into the Christmas season. There's many more Christmas parties to come and, and those are wonderful and good and yet they're tiring and sometimes even expensive. But Father, do we know the presence of God? We don't live for others. We live for one. We live for Jesus Christ. Father, in this room, there's many who've experienced the pardon. They, they've been forgiven. They've come into relationship with Jesus. We've seen that testimony even in baptism this morning. But, Lord, there's others. They've never experienced the pardon of God. They've never experienced forgiveness of sin. They've never come into relationship with you as Lord and Savior. So the Bible will tell us, while they may be religious, while they may be able to answer questions about the Bible and explain the gospel, even on some level, they're dead in trespasses and sins. So God, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you'd call them to yourself this morning. God, as you called out Abram from his own sin, God, I pray you'd call many out today from their sin. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, as your people, you are always good to us. Lord, we see that in Egypt. We see that in Israel, coming out of Egypt from that bondage. We see that for 400 years they suffered and struggled. But Lord, you never turned a blind eye. You never turned a deaf ear. In your sovereignty, in your timing, in your plan, you orchestrated the events for their deliverance. And Lord, that is true of Jesus Christ. But in our lives... You're faithful and good. You've called us to yourself, and you continue to care for your people. Lord, help us to see that, share us that glory in that in our own lives. As we move into a time of response, there's perhaps all kinds of different things you're doing in the hearts of those who are listening this morning. My prayer is that they would respond. My prayer is that I would respond to that. Whatever it is, Father, that you are leading us to do. God, for those who need to give their life to Jesus... May today be the day of salvation for them. May they call out, confess, turn from their sin, trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. For us as believers, Lord, I pray they'd walk a little closer with you this season. God, I would even say, may it not be for a season, but may it be the trajectory of our life from this day forward. We love you, we thank you. Now, Lord, help us to respond as the Spirit of God leads us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand your feet? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.